You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Book of 1 John to this important epistle from the writings of the Apostle. Uh, We're now a little over halfway through our series in the letters of John, and uh, we come tonight to one of his prominent themes in this letter on the theme of love, and it's challenging preaching through John because so many of the themes recur over and over again, so Pastor Light and I and the other pastors had to figure out new angles to come at this text, but it is rich, it is meaty, and it is worthy of our attention. Perhaps uh, a number of you may recall the words of the famous philosopher, Forrest Gump. He says, I'm not a smart man, but I do know what love is. It does not take a genius to understand or recognize love. Love is perhaps the most profound thing on this green earth. Christianity has been known as the religion of love, and that for good reason. Because historically, Christianity has introduced an understanding of love that was largely unknown in the ancient world. Historians show that most religions, in fact, most religious people today do not think of God as love. That is a uniquely Christian idea that we take for granted here in the West. We're told in this letter of John that we love because God first loved us. Now, our text tonight anchors back to that passage we read from John 15, the original command of Jesus that we love one another. So as the Apostle John roots his text in that fundamental command, we read this passage to help us better understand our identity as Christians and what is our calling before God and one another. Please follow as I read verses 11 through 20. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty 
commands. We tremble when we consider the high standard that the Lord Jesus has set for us, that we ought to love one another as he has loved us. We cry out to you in our weakness for strength. We cry out to you in our neediness for your grace to understand these things, to apply these things, and to carry out the commands of our Lord Jesus as we abide in him by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the runaway best-selling series, the Harry Potter series, written by J.K. Rowling, we learn that young Harry is only alive because his own mother laid down her life to protect him. In the story, if you're not familiar, there is a villainous figure named Lord Voldemort who is obsessively hateful and murderously determined to control the wizarding world and the muggle world of non-magical people. And he is obsessed with a prophecy that Harry Potter will rise up to destroy him. And so he goes on a rampage to kill Harry's family. Well... In the conflict, Lily Potter, the mother, blocks a spell from the Lord Voldemort, taking her life, and yet unbeknownst to the evil Lord, her act of sacrifice cast a greater spell of protection on her infant son. And so when Lord Voldemort tries to destroy the child, the spell bounces back and destroys him instead. Love prevails over hate. The ancient Greeks would have called Lily Potter's act of love storge. That is the word for love that refers to the natural affection between a mother for her child. Storge moves us to protect our own, to serve our young, to even to the point of making the ultimate sacrifice. But the Greeks had three other words for love, one being philia. That refers to the affection shared between friends. It can also mean the camaraderie between military soldiers who, in the heat of battle, develop the deep bonds of brotherhood. And then thirdly, you may be familiar with eros, that passionate desire shared by lovers. That's when we see a young couple in love we are referring to eros. Well, this third love of eros, much as it was in the ancient world today, we can hardly distinguish it from lust, having been so degraded into a self-gratifying passion to use others for one's, to fulfill one's desires. Then, of course, there's the fourth word for love, agape. Now, agape was rarely used in the ancient Greek writings. It's it's almost like the Greeks didn't know what to do with this word. But it was the, the Jewish translators who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Koine Greek that used the word agape over and over to describe the nature of Yahweh's love for his people his passionate desire to preserve, to redeem, and to save his people for himself. 
Now, as we come into the New Testament era, we find the word agape all over. John's letter, I'm not even sure how many dozens, if not over a hundred references, use the noun or the verb form of agape. This divine love. This self-sacrificing love. And so we can say, in a real sense, Christianity introduced a whole new dimension to the world about the nature of God's love. And so opened up a way of reconciliation between God and man and man and man. Well, much like the first century Christians, we live in a society where love is largely misunderstood. Many people think of love as a mere emotion. Love is the pits, something you fall into. Love is something you earn or something you try to deserve. Love is used by some to manipulate and to gratify one's selfish ambitions. But much like Normandy, France in 1944, we need the gracious invasion of God to teach us afresh what love is. John opens this passage referring to Jesus' command that we love one another. This is the message we've heard from the beginning, from the beginning of the apostolic ministry. The life and ministry of Christ was characterized by love. Agape love as he ministered to the weak, the needy, and the sinner. And he taught his disciples to follow after him even on the very night of his own betrayal, where his own disciples would flee out of fear. But I read again from John 15, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love is absolutely central to the Christian faith. As said already, it is unique to Christianity. No other religion holds us to such a high standard as exemplified by the words and deeds of Christ who made his sacrifice for us. So we come to this text with this question, what is love? Well, John approaches the answer by first telling us what love is not. In verse 12, he references Cain in reference to the very first act of hatred in the Bible. The first act of of fratricide between Cain and Abel. And you remember the story, how Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God, but Abel's was looked upon with favor from God, and Cain's was not accepted. And Cain grew jealous. And a spirit of, of rage In self-pity, he led his younger brother out into a field, deceived him, and struck him down. Stewing and sulking in his anger, resentment, and self-pity. Perhaps even attacking God with this murderous deed. John introduces Cain as the archetype, as the, the original conflict that establishes the conflict throughout the ages between the righteous, and the wicked. God's people throughout the ages have been 
persecuted by the children of Satan. And so John says in verse 13, we ought not to be surprised if the world hates us because we have a different father. We have an irreconcilable difference. Jesus warned his disciples that as he was persecuted, as he was hated, so his followers would be hated. Darkness hates the light. It is determined to snuff it out and to quench our fire. Sadly, the Bible is filled with examples of brotherly hatred. After Cain and Abel, there was Jacob and Esau. You remember how Jacob swindled his brother, how he stole his birthright, and Esau consoled himself, fantasizing about killing his brother after their father had passed away. Joseph was hated by his brothers for sharing his dreams with them because he was the father's favorite. And so they committed treachery selling their own brother into slavery, sending him off to Egypt out of resentment of their father Jacob, and even pulled the wool over his eyes, making him believe that Joseph was dead. There was Moses, who was assaulted and attacked by his own sister Miriam and brother Aaron, coveting his position of leadership and the honor he had before God, in leading God's people. And we might recall Eliab, the oldest brother of David, who resented his precocious little brother who only came out to see the battle when Goliath was taunting the host of the Lord's army. Moses writes in Leviticus 19.17, Do not hate your brother, in your heart, challenging us not only in our kinship relationships, but as the family and people of God. Every Christian, every believer is my brother or sister in Christ. John echoes this in verse 14 when he says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Furthermore, the one who does not love remains in death. It's like he's trapped. Hatred is a death trap. Rooted in hatred and self-centeredness, the person who is stewing with anger is trapped in his own cage of pride and self-pity. A hateful heart stews with angry thoughts, vents revengeful words, and carries out deeds of malice. Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount that anyone who is angry with his brother is guilty of violating the Sixth Commandment and is a murderer at heart. You and I may harbor anger towards other people. Those who have mocked us, those who have picked on us, those who have used words like a butcher's knife to slay us. We might harbor secret hatred towards those who have neglected us, who have looked over us, who have stolen from us, who have perhaps harmed our reputation or steamrolled us with their own selfish ambition. 
John seems to allude to the fact that we might expect this from non-believers. We might even have compassion on those who are lost. But what about believers? What about when another Christian does something to stir up anger in our hearts? Is there a fellow Christian that you secretly harbor hatred for? Is there something that you perhaps have done to lock someone else in the bitterness, the bondage of resentment? If that is the case, you need to heed this command. The command of the Lord to be reconciled. To perhaps go show another person his or her sin. Or perhaps go and confess your sin. To either be the first to offer forgiveness. Or be the first to beg and plea for forgiveness. For only in honoring this command will love prevail over hate. It's amazing how many families are torn over this kind of hatred. It's sad how many churches are divided and destroyed by a failure to heed this command, by a failure to recognize the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, to fail in allowing the love of God to neutralize that hatred, to heal it, to leave it and bury it, At the foot of the cross. Yes, only through the cross of Christ may love prevail over hate. Well, I'm convinced in studying this passage, it's not as clearly evident, but I think it's implied by the text, that hatred is not the only opposite of love. That you don't have to be actively committing animosity, to fail the test of love, I think, I think hatred has a twin brother, or at least a distant cousin. We might call it apathy. You see, hatred kills with violence and animosity. Apathy, however, kills by neglect, the lack of care or concern. At the root of apathy is a deep self-centeredness. It lacks empathy. It feeds on self-protection. In the absence of love, apathy allows evil to go by unchecked. Apathy was the German minister who instructed his congregation upon hearing the ruckus of Nazi soldiers shuffling Jewish families into rail cars to sing just a little bit louder to drown out the cries of distress by families being torn apart from liquidation. Apathy was the attitude of Jonah who fled away from Nineveh on an escape mission. It was empathy that moved God to save him from the belly of a well. And sending him back on course to preach a rescue mission to the wicked Ninevites. As you know the story of Jonah, upon observing the repentance of the Ninevites, 
Jonah faced his worst fear. You see, he knew that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In his mind, the Ninevites did not deserve grace. They deserved judgment for their wickedness. You see, Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites themselves. He was afraid of God showing them mercy. And so, observing God's compassion upon the Ninevites, Jonah removes himself from the city to sit upon a hill, to hoard a royal grudge, to throw a pity party. And there Jonah sulked, waiting that perhaps God would change his mind and destroy the city. But God, in his graciousness, refrained from venting his wrath upon that city. And that same gracious God reached out his hand to a sullen prophet. A prophet who in many ways is representative of a self-righteous Israel. Who looked down with disdain upon the Gentiles. And the question God asks of Jonah is a question that pricks all of our pride. God says, should I not be concerned about that great city? Should not God be concerned about the Arab world? Should God not be concerned about secular Europe? Should God not be concerned about North Korea and other awful places where Christians are being slaughtered? Do we, in our anger or our apathy, secretly wish that our enemies were dead? Do we, like Jonah, fail the test of compassion? You know, when I was reading the story of Jonah this week, I made a connection that I'd never made before. I just recently finished reading Tim Keller's The Prodigal God, a fantastic book that I highly recommend. And I realized that both the prodigal son's story and the story of Jonah end in exactly the same way. Where God is pleading with the elder brother to have compassion on the younger brother. In the case of Jonah, it's the elder brother Israel to have mercy upon the younger brother of the Gentiles. And of course, in the story of the prodigal son, it's the father pleading with the self-righteous and angry, sullen elder brother to join him in celebrating the return and the life and the repentance of the younger brother You see, Cain, the story of Cain, the story of Jonah, the story of the prodigal, all carry out this familiar theme in the scriptures. I call it the problem of the elder brother. In each case, the elder brother has a serious deficiency in compassion. Each one is ruled by self-righteousness and vindictiveness and hatred. Thankfully, you and I have an elder brother who succeeded where all the others failed. Where Jonah expressed apathy, Jesus offered empathy. Where Cain vented his hatred, Jesus 
came to lay down his life in love for you and I. It is Jesus alone who shows us what love is. John refers to this sacrifice, telling us that Jesus laid down his life for us. In baseball, a batter can lay down a sacrificial bunt to advance a base runner in a scoring position. He may sacrifice himself by getting thrown out at first base, but he gives his team a better chance at scoring by advancing the runner. A military hero may lay down his life for the protection and safety of others. We heard recently of a soldier in Iraq who threw his body onto a grenade that had been tossed into their transport by the enemy. His action saved many lives. And he is a great hero who did something very noble indeed. But he did not do the same thing that Jesus did. That soldier laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. That soldier did what many other soldiers would have been glad to do if they had been in similar circumstances with a grenade at their feet. Jesus did what no one else could do or would do. In dying for enemies to make them friends. And so making him not just a hero, but the savior of the world. John goes on in observing the example of Jesus, telling us that we are obligated in his likeness to lay down our lives for one another. Now, you and I cannot repeat what Jesus did. We are not saviors. But our sacrifices, while having no atoning power, are testimonies pointing people to the one and final sacrifice that does save sinners. You and I lay down our lives when we are willing to set aside our agendas to meet the needs of others. When we open our ears to listen to people needing to talk. When we come alongside people in need to meet them where they're at, to not judge them, but to accept them and love them, to give up our time and energy for them. Some of us may be called to literally lay down our lives for others. But all of us are called to live sacrificially by dying to self. And John here says that we have passed from death to life if we love our brothers. Now this term of Jesus who laid down his life for us is the same term John uses in chapter 13 of his gospel, describe how Jesus took off his outer garment and proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. And so that great sacrifice of Christ was anticipated by an act of extremely humble service. In that likeness, John goes on to offer us a case study of how we might serve our brothers in love. One test of love is 
measured by one's attitude towards his worldly possessions, as it says here in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? him? How tightly do we clutch our possessions? With a tight hand, a fist, or with a loose, open hand? Jesus says that where your treasure is, there where your heart where your heart will be also. And John's saying, if anyone sees his brother and fails to have pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And John in this in this verse captures another biblical theme. We see this all throughout Scripture. This pattern of seeing of being moved in compassion and consequently taking action out of love. We find this in the story of Jonah. After observing the repentance of the Ninevites, the narrator records in chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how the Ninevites turned from their evil ways, he had compassion And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God saw them in their need. He had compassion upon them in their plight. And out of love, refrained from bringing his judgment upon them. We see this pattern over and over in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 9, 36 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. For they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14 says that Jesus saw the crowds, had compassion upon them, and healed their sick. The story of the Good Samaritan, the same pattern. He saw, took pity, took action. And of course, the father of the prodigal saw his son coming from far off. In compassion, filled with compassion, he ran to him and smothered him with, with love and kisses and to safely bring him back into the village. So in keeping with this pattern, our first point of application is to ask ourselves whether or not we see people in need. It's a lot easier to guard your heart and your money if you blind yourself to the needs of others, are your eyes open? Do you open them to let in the pain of other people's lives? You might be moved to pity. Or do you keep them closed, allowing your heart to be calloused towards them? Second point of application is whether or not your heart is in the right place. It says in the NIV translation, verse 17, that the person who sees and, but has no pity on him, and this is a good interpretation, but the, the words literally say, one who shuts his heart against him. A heart that is shut up, a heart that is closed, lets nothing in and nothing out. It can either give anything or receive anything. It's like a stagnant pond with no inflow or outflow that grows with pond scum. It's like the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. 
before he's visited and transformed by the three angels of Christmas, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. A cold, greedy, miserly heart. Where is your heart? And thirdly, what is your attitude towards material possessions? John does not take it for granted that everyone has wealth. He says, if one has material possessions and wealth, recognizing that there are some who have nothing to give. And we know some people who have nothing to give, but they give anyway. There are others that should be giving, but are so overloaded with debt that they can't give as they should. And I think we all need to humbly recognize that most of us live with far more than we can ever possibly use or need. I believe this text is a challenging one in the affluent age in which we live. And I challenge us to ask this question. Has God given us wealth to increase our standard of living or to increase our standard of giving? I believe it's a real problem when statistics show that Christians only give 2 to 3% of their income to the church and to charity. And it's not so much because of the needs of church or charity. It's the sadness of the addiction to material things. You know, there is a cure to materialism. There is a cure to debtedness. It's called a tithe. It's called going above and beyond the tithe to give, to invest your treasures in heaven and not accumulate your treasures on earth. I believe that the formula here, the the gift here, is like the spirit of Scrooge who was liberated from his bondage to self-centeredness. So we find that the people who are most struck by the gospel are the most generous and cheerful to give their time, their money, and their resources for the Lord's work. People who have been forgiven much, love much. However, it's people who understand the gospel little, love little. As life does not dwell in the murderer, so love does not dwell in the miser. Lastly, John points in verse 18 to how actions speak louder than words. He says, do not love with word or tongue, but in actions And in truth, reminding us that talk is cheap, that faith without deeds is dead. John echoes the words of James where he rebukes the wealthy, the wealthy one who sees his brother or sister without clothes and not enough food and says merely, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing to meet the material needs of the brother or sister. I'm thankful that we are a church who gives food and clothing in a modest effort to meet the material needs of others. It's heart-wrenching sometimes fielding calls from people in the community. We have to politely tell people that we can give them food or clothing and give them instructions on how we can meet these tangible needs. Oftentimes people just want money. And I have to guard my heart against getting cynical against people who are good at manipulation, are good at being demanding and adding a guilt trip. But we stay committed to pointing people ultimately to Christ 
Money will not solve their problems. Only Christ will. And yet we have a calling to try to meet those physical needs inside the church and outside the church. And I'm grateful for the generosity of this church and encourage you to continue to grow in that same generosity, especially in the trying times in which we live where many are in great need. But we need to continue to point people to Jesus, the only one who can meet the deep needs of the heart and show people what love truly is. In J.K. Rowling's series, there's another important character named Professor Dumbledore, who just before his demise offers up a very heroic effort to reach out to a very angry and violent youth named Draco Malfoy. Draco is like one of the youth in Hitler's youth camps, who has pledged himself to the murderous regime of Lord Voldemort. Draco manages to disarm Professor Dumbledore in a duel. But then, surprisingly, rather than threaten Draco, rather than try to overpower him with his superior abilities, Professor Dumbledore pleads with Draco to put down the wand, not to save his own life, but to save Draco's soul from further entrenching himself into the murderous hate of Voldemort. Draco surprisingly hesitates, moved by this unknown compassion of somebody who actually was more concerned about him than about his own self. I think that J.K. Rowling captures something about Christ in her non-Christian fiction there's something about Dumbledore that is, a, is an echo of the suffering of Jesus, who when the soldiers and the Jews hurled insult at him, did not retaliate. When suffered, he made no threats, but rather entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, boring our, bearing our sins in his body that we too might die sins and live for righteousness. I'm convinced that Rowling, who is not a Christian, could never possibly have written her works that reflect in some sense this agape love without the overwhelming influence of Christ on our culture. The ancient Greeks could never have written anything resembling the Gospels. Because Christ introduced something so radically new to a world in need of a message from God. Love will never be the same again. Every selfless act throughout history is but a footnote of the one perfect act of sacrifice of Jesus who, in love, offered himself in our place. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we must lay down our lives for one another. Let us pray. The gracious God,
We thank you that in Christ, through the message of the gospel, you have taught us what love is. We acknowledge that we are weak, we are ignorant, and we need instruction and guidance and power from on high. Help us, O Lord, to know the love of God in Christ, to follow you in love and to fulfill this command, to genuinely love one another, to lay down our lives that Christ might be honored and glorified in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name.